I, it's amazing how people take the shoes off and they still walk like they're wearing shoes and it's like their their feet turn into flippers and it's just kind of very stiff and there is and it's not unlike the athleticism of being able to orient yourself so think about it there are 33 bones in the foot or 26 bones in the foot 33 joints and then all the muscles if the feet were meant to just be flippers there would be one bone from the moment you wake up to the moment your head hits the pillow this is the it's all day podcast your home for knowledge and inspiration about fitness, nutrition, and the mentality behind what it takes to be great. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the It's All Day podcast. Today, I am here with Graham Tuttle. Graham Tuttle is a fellow ATG coach. He, well, actually, Graham, why don't you kind of tell the listeners a little short spiel, kind of like who you are, what you do, so they get an idea. Spiel. It's a, it's a, it's one of those words. I think it's probably Yiddish. I don't know where it comes from, but spiel is such an interesting, uh, interesting. It, it never sounds appealing, right? It's like, oh, what's your spiel? It's like, oh, great. You know, my eyes have rolled over to what's the sales pitch. Um, but uh, no, basically, I've been uh, coaching and working with athletes for, I don't know, eight, seven, eight years now, working uh, basically a an exploration of my own curiosity. Um, I, Pretty much was very unathletic as a kid growing up, uh, horrible eyesight, pretty uncoordinated, didn't have much um, much going on in terms of natural talent, so to speak. And so uh, as I got through college and was thinking, balancing between a few different options, medical school or physical therapy school, and finally decided that the only thing I really loved to do was work at the gym. And um, at the time, that was more admin stuff, but, you know, I at the campus gym being, you know, cleaning the floors and uh, checking people in the front desk, but, you know, it's, it's on the come up. And uh, after I graduated, I, I got my certification, the personal training, you know, the, the, the general thing that hoops people, hoops people jump through and started uh, working at a place that was very fortunate for me was uh, that worked with athletes. And so I kind of got in this, you know, got my feet wet. I'm like, oh, wow, this whole skill set I never learned how to do, like to run, to jump, to throw, to move like uh, you're not a meathead, basically. Like I used mm-hmm. to get made fun of my friends would even play basketball and they like, to act like I was running around like a gorilla and I'm like all right you know let's calm down here but um so you know I, I kind of got in that and started to develop a little bit of an understanding because I had to figure out what it meant to be an athlete pretty much from scratch and so that process led me to like question a lot of the traditional stuff like I didn't have a you know this is my football because I ran track and cross country you know the the sports okay. I don't like cuts in high school yeah <laughs> yeah um, so and and to worse on that, I was the alternate on the cross country team. So I was always the eighth man on every uh, for the boys team every time, which is I mean I got to carry the coolers and the uh, the tent every single time. So I got pretty strong doing that. And then for track, I for years, the first three years, I just ran the two mile, which is like oh, that's where they just send the uh, the average kids to go die. It's like at the end of you you want to know what hell is like. Go to the end of a, a long twelve hour cross country meet or, or track were event uh, track meet so they have like all the events for whatever reason they put the two mile at the end so it's the last well thankfully the four by four is the last one because that's the fun one but they put the two mile and it is just it is eight laps on this track and some of the kids it just you're just sitting there for 12 15 16 20 minutes just watching these oh, kids God. It's, it's horrible so that was me and uh, until i finally got you know my senior year started to lift a little bit of weights and got stronger i'm like oh wait i could do something with myself and so that, that little, little spark, a little bit of curiosity. Okay, well, maybe I could actually get stronger. So anyways, I, I go through, kind of learn these skills and uh, have to question a lot of stuff. And so I didn't have like, you know, my old high school. Uh, this was my football coach in high school. I had to kind of learn that stuff. And so then 
bumping into Ben just via Instagram and know what he was doing, I guess, about a year and a half going on two years ago. And, you know, it was like, yeah, a lot of this, this guy's stuff matches up with things I think about, like start from the ground, um, looking at training the body as an athlete and moving in a way that's not just a typical like CrossFit powerlifting, uh, Olympic lifting set of movements. And uh, so that really clicked with me and I was like, all right. So then, you know, ended up just uh, getting to know him better and getting involved with the ATG part of things. And the thing I really like about that is just, it's, it's a, uh, it's a system that's developed for athletes, but really it's primarily aimed at restoring human, human movement. So from that perspective, I just wanted to be able to aid in that. That was something I was thinking about a lot and uh, I've kind of branched off a little bit into uh, specializing in feet uh, and, and running. So basically how humans move and how we're meant mm-hmm. to orient and integrate with the ground. So yeah, that's uh, kind of a, a, a teaser for what could be a longer story, but probably doesn't need to be. Fantastic, dude. That's, uh, I didn't know that you were not a previous athlete. Oh, I mean, besides, besides like kind of like running and cross country and whatnot, because when you look at a lot of your content, I mean, you lift well, you run great. So like you look athletic in the things that you do. There was one, I will say, I think you posted one about doing like a max vert jump. Yep. And I saw your max vert jump and I was like, he's probably never done a max vert jump. Before. Never. No. Yeah. It's well, I think that was a week or so ago and it's gotten better, but there, like for anyone out there that is just listening and that wants to get more athletic, it is a, there, so there is, there is a rhythm of life that some people just have. And I think a lot of kids have it, but they get, they get it beaten out of them as they sit in school and like, you know, wear shoes and never really move around much. But this, it's, I, I think of athleticism as like a physical problem solving. So the ability for your body to orient itself in space, to be able to, to move and to uh, let's say calibrate based off of what physical conditions are coming at you. And so much of that involves things like proprioception and visual feedback and being able to listen and have uh, tactile cues. So for me, like, and this sounds silly, but I have had, I have the worst eyesight of anyone I've ever met in my life, like hands down other than like blind people. So I've, I've worn glasses since I was two and I'm talking rec specs. I'm talking like bottle thick lenses. My parents found out at two because I was, I would watch Barney. I would be on the end of the couch, literally two feet away. My face was two feet away from this massive TV screen. And they're like, huh, I don't think his, his eyesight's that good. So <laughs> not only do I have an, it's like, I think it's a plus 8.75 and plus nine. So most, yeah. I know That's, most people are like, oh, I wear glasses. I got two. Or do you, you have any? I wear contacts. Yeah. So if, when you're saying this, I was like, I wonder how blind he actually is. Because when I go to the eye doctor, I can't see the biggest letter. Yeah. So I know when I go there, like, what's the letter? I'm like, lady, I know it's E because I've been here so many times, but like, honestly, I can't read it. So like, I'm like a plus, I think three, maybe like a 3.5. But the fact that you're like an eight, nine is ridiculous. It's insane. So yeah. So you got to realize like when you're wearing glasses, that plays a big factor. Get, yeah. What you don't get is peripheral vision. So mm-hmm. if you were to put your hands up beside your eyes and then block the side, now imagine living like that. And basically over... I got contacts my sixth grade. So that changed my life. I remember the first time I could see my nose. I was like, is my nose big? Like, is everyone else? Can, can you see your nose? And it was just this like scary moment. I'm like, oh my God, I, I can see my nose. But it was so cool. And it changed my life. Like it changed my life. But you got to realize it's like going from two to 13 without really having mm-hmm. peripheral vision. You stop using that. You don't think about it. And so there's a lot of stuff where like I'll get better, but especially if it gets dark, um, uh, for a while like playing basketball it's like if i'm you know one-on-one or three-on-three or less like i can be great i've, I've actually i'm not great but i'm 
somewhat decent at it. But when you get like the five on five and there's so many moving pieces, my brain struggles here and it's gotten much better. But there's a whole lot of that where, you know, playing football, for example, we played in fourth grade and it's like you can't wear rec specs because you put the helmet on and it pulls the strap down. And rec specs mm-hmm. are the, if you don't know, they're like goggles, but they have an elastic strap that goes around the back of your head with this big plastic thing. Um, but you can't wear those because it pulls your head down. Um, and so then I would wear these glasses with hoops that go around the back of your ear, but you have no peripheral vision. I would run in the backfield. I would just get smacked from the side. Cause I was like, I had no, I didn't know if you got out of my vision. So what people don't get is like your eyesight matters so much. And there's actually a lot that goes on with ophthalmology and like training athletes have better eyesight. And this is actually something that's, um, I've, I've worked with. I didn't personally work with him. I just got to know him in a professional sense. Um, but he, he's talked about a lot of what he does is most thing is most people don't realize they have bad eyesight until they actually do some work on it and, or go and like get an eye test. And most people don't go to the eye doctor because they don't think about it. Now, that being said, I actually spend time every morning. I go outside and work on my eyes. So like I cover up an eye and I stare the distance because you have ocular muscles. So intraocular muscles that shorten and expand the, the cornea, basically, forgive my poor speech, um, okay. but they actually change the shape of your eyes. And so you can actually just like every other part of your body can develop and train your eyes to develop that. So you get like farsighted. I can't remember which is which, but one has uh, the cornea is too wide. The other is too narrow. It's too far back and too close up. Um, but a lot of that is a constriction of the muscles around it. I have this kind of theory that if you are, um, if you like nearsighted is your, your intraocular muscles are too tight. They're basically engaging too much and they're squeezing and creating too much of a tension. But it's interesting if you go out without glasses and you cover up one eye at a time and really just focus, your eyes will actually adjust. But since we look at like a computer screen that's 12 inches away most of the day and we don't really go out and look at the distance, we get weak. And so that myopia, not my, it's um, ocular dystrophy. There's some word for it, for, um, for the word is but basically loss of eyesight over as you degrade and get older. It happens because you're not using your eyes. But the point being is that there was a loss, a, a loss of a lot of the athleticism, something I had to learn later on. So really for me, starting early 20s, so like 22, 23, I was like, I want to be athletic. And so that's when I started and like things that I can teach myself. So more skills. How old are you now? How old are you I'm now? Sorry, now. now. So, okay, so yeah. about, what is that? Five, six think, years? Yeah. And well, and the hard part was that you don't know what you don't know while you're learning it, which is what the benefit benefit and value of having a coach is, is they can say, Hey, you know, this thing that you're going to learn in like two years, let's go ahead and start working on it now. And so that's a really big piece. But, you know, I started off as like, okay, well, let me, that's why I could lift and I could lift first because I, I can be in my body and feel this and move. And so I was able to learn. And so anything that is a skill you can learn, but you have to be able to break it down into the components that allow you to pick it up. So, you know, it's even something like running, which is, very foundational and easy for humans to do but some of that you may have to start with skipping you have to start with single leg hopping you have to start with this this um coordinating flow for the contralateral arm and leg so it's just all learning a skill is about breaking it down to the components forms to the point that you can just do that without thinking about it and then once you get that you can combine it with another component and then you kind of build up into this higher level uh, movement Mm -hmm. so that process of learning how to run, because even though I ran track and cross country, no one teaches you how to run. Like I wore the big ASICs, I heel struck, I was slow as molasses, horrible. Um, but then, you know, you start to move and put these pieces together. So, you know, as that you start with training, you start to be able to move your body and balance in space. Then you start with the athletic skills, running, jumping, throwing, uh, sprinting, deceleration. I guess those are the four, deceleration, running, jumping, throwing. And then you can start to put that together with extra, I don't know, extra 
not terrestrial, extra things outside of your body. So like uh, orienting yourself with other teammates, uh, being able to learn the skills of the game, being able to hold the ball and manipulate an object around your body, being able to, like you look at like LeBron James or any great soccer player or sport player, they have this like intuitive intelligence and they can feel where this is going to go. And it's like, mm-hmm. that was cool. It's kind of like they say, when you're learning a new language and you can dream in that language, that's when you're getting more fluent. It's like, I remember there was a time very distinctly as I started to get more and more athletic, I'd play basketball and I would go to move something and I would, I would get this sense of like, okay, he's going to step here. He's going to step here. And I'm just going to go in between and I could like get the ball to move. And it's like, I, I could feel it. And it's the same thing with volleyball as I've gotten more into that now. It's like, you see where the, the play is going, where people are moving and you can almost like, they're going to hit the ball there and I'm there beforehand. But that comes way, way, way on once you get the fact that you're, think about it. If your brain is so busy trying to say, wait, what foot do I step with? Wait, how do I move my knee? And you just see people that are painfully unathletic. It's just like they, they'd fall over. They can't balance on one foot. When your brain is occupied with all that, it can't open up space to be aware of the outside. But once yeah. you get that down so that you can close your eyes and move in space, that's why dancing is so valuable for a lot of people. Once you get that down, then you can think, okay, wow, now I can actually pay attention to this stuff and I can open up the sensory uh, capacity of my brain to pay attention to the game. And that's when you can start to like feature cast different situations and move in that. And that's when it's like, how did you do that? I don't know. Yeah, so, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's when that's when so many people talk about, you know, athletes being able to get into their flow state, you know, yeah. and they're, it seems like they're not even trying, but for some reason, everything they're thinking just creates in front yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, when did this stuff become such almost like an obsession for you because you can tell how excited you are when you talk about these things and for most people like the reason I ask you know most people could have been in high school just like you they were struggling with sports they did cross country and track because you know the coaches told you to run you could kind of figure it out whatever it might be but most people would do that they would graduate and they go to college and they said never fucking again am I ever joining a sport that was god awful and they just go live like the normal typical life you know they, they go to class they get a job and they become even less athletic because of that one situation in high school and they could have had your circumstances they were blind as fuck they couldn't yep. see you know yep. it was like so many things against them and yet all of those things come and you're like no i want to dive into it more like where yeah. did that kind of come from within you or what do you where do you think that came from um i'll say that there's two things that's i have a i have a romantic ideological intensity for life in which i tend to be a hopeless optimist and think the best of every opportunity which is why i'm a coach because i like to see the best in other people then I'm also a uh, painfully intuitive individual that asks questions incessantly. So like teachers hated me because they're like, what is that? I don't think that. And it's just like, I would just, I, I, I don't trust anybody about anything ever. So I'm just like, mm-hmm. I don't know. You say that, but, and I say that that's, that's picked up momentum as I've gotten through life. So, you know, you're a young kid and I was a difficult kid for sure. Uh, as I was told by my teachers and parents, you know, it's just like, I didn't like to sit still, didn't want to listen to what they had to say. I just, I was always like, has it, having questions. I'm like, I don't really know if you know what you're, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. And so I yeah. let them know. And so, but you eventually go to school and there's a certain level of like, you know, sit down, shut up. And it kind of beats you down. And so I, I would clamor for more certainty, basically. I wanted to know what I was going to do, what I was going to believe, who I was going to marry, what kids are going to have, like all these things going to figure that out. And so you know, once I started to get those ripped off, like things just happen in life, you go through a difficult relationship. Uh, you, you know, I, I was at one point I was married in the past, but you go through a divorce, you just, just things happen that you're like, well, this isn't going to fit my worldview. So those things kind of shake it up. And you realize like, okay, well, actually, if I trust myself and really lean into this, this skill set I have of asking questions and um, being my own advocate, then I open up space 
to uh, for a novelty, for new newness, for uh, learning. And so I've always kind of paired that. So once I really, whenever I realize something is a skill, there's a there's a there's a, a barrier between the us and them, like so the me and them. So you'll see someone that's good at a sport. You'll see someone that's wealthy. You'll see someone that's in a healthy relationship. And most people, it's much easier for them to say, well, that's just them, and they ascribe it to some level of external things. So they have genetics. They had money. They had good looks. They had whatever thing that they had. And they, you know, and here's the thing, a lot of people do, they just kind of like most people that are successful happen to have a set of skills that they just roll with, right? Um, and you look and see this in athletes, they just happen to be good. Well, you see this with one dimensional athletes who don't necessarily last the test of time. They may be mm-hmm. really fast and they get to them, but then they, they see success. But the ones that really make it all the way through to like a professional level are the ones that understand they have to work on the other pieces. And so they treat it like a job and they treat themselves like a moldable piece of clay that they can work on those skills. So, you know, once you break that down, this barrier between me and what is possible, then you realize literally everything is possible. And it sounds like a trope. It sounds cheesy, but it's simply just understanding that everything that is a skill is learnable. And it's all about understanding the component pieces. And when you look at it like that, Writing, uh, being a, a business owner, having a good website, selling things with writing copy, things with uh, creating a good program, being a good coach, being a good athlete, learning a skill uh, like juggling, like um, or working on a new sport, learning how to speak better. Literally everything is just a matter of deciding you want to do it and then sticking around long enough to let those skills uh, materialize. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, dude. So, of course. If, if I, for someone who is struggling with that sense, I would then ask, you know, what worldview, because it's a really... The, the, to not to just ramble on more, but the, the real big thing is that you look at like this idea of like worldview and religion. So everyone has a religion, whether or not they say so or not. Atheists have religion. Uh, religious people have a religion. Some people are just more formatted based on like how you know, how how what they how they would language it and vocalize it. But most people, their religion is really the worldview. So you know the general religion we inherit from our parents and the worldview of our parents is that the world is scarce. You need to make sure, like if you come up with, it's tough circumstances, you don't have a lot of money or there's no food there. It's the world is scarce. You better take what's yours. There's not going to be anything. No one's watching out for you. Someone that has a healthy upbringing and childhood may say, hmm, okay, the world is abundant. I've, you know, there's opportunity out there. I don't have to go and be or do a certain thing. I can go and explore. And so you see these ideas of like never questioning the first worldview of like, well, it just is the way it is. And you let parents, teachers, schools, uh, governments, whatever, societal forces kind of force how you shape how you think think about things that uh, family of origin so to speak but then it's that growth that rebirth so to speak is to uh, question that and to form a more true worldview for who you want to be the values you want to hold so whether that's mm-hmm. abundance whether that's generosity whether that's growth whether that's honesty whether that's compassion whether that's you know um, challenge those are the things that well, who do I want to be and what does that look like to embrace discomfort so really if you are at a place where you would rather just blame, shift, and deny, that's more of a childlike uh, posture to take. But it's because you, you haven't quite seen what's possible. And all it takes is one thing. Find one little skill you didn't think you could learn. Maybe it's juggling. Maybe it's uh, shooting free throws for basketball. Maybe it's why well, I think sports are really good because it's kind of a physical thing that most people find very engaging, especially a lot of young boys. Um, it's just it gets their body and it gets them into that space. Uh, but it, it, it's it's true of you know no matter what the sex, but like finding that one thing you could start on and then like oh I could do this for me it was weightlifting oh I can actually make my body different and then once you see that you're like well why not do this with something else and then that intoxifying 
it's intoxication or it's intoxifying and just gets you just like, oh my gosh, I can do anything I want. And that is like a zest and a passion for life that I think is worth living for. Does that make sense? Fuck yeah, it does. That's awesome. Um, When did, like, when did the whole foot focus come into things? I know this probably sounds really weird. Like he doesn't have a foot fetish or anything, people, but like, he's like very well in depth when it comes to running. Isn't just running. Like there is so much more into running with regards to each muscle in your foot. And can you spread your toes? And how are you running when you plant too much to like the side or on your heel or to your toe? Like he goes so in depth. So that's what I mean. When did like the foot intrigue come into play with this? And when did you start diving in deep with that? So I've always had this kind of, uh, it's interesting. I don't know what first set it off, but um, at some point, so I had, I had started training. I started just doing a lot of working out um, and, you know, typically getting the CrossFit, getting the bodybuilding, getting the powerlifting, you know, you do Olympic lifting, you do all the typical strength sports as you're kind of like figuring the stuff out. And most of the stuff is geared towards bodybuilding because that's where they sell supplements. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was like a self-taught when I was going through high school and the college. Um, but because of that, like, you know, you don't learn things like uh, this is one of the things that really I, I find a lot of value in the ATG is really hitting the hip flexors, breaking the core, understanding the knee flexion. You know, you're not training the body like an athlete, but then if you want to go be athletic and move and really I define athlete as anyone who has a capacity and domain over their dominion over their body. So the ability to be able to do what you want to do with your body, that's an athlete. And so it's a physical mm-hmm. problem solving. So um my knees started to just ache. And so the first thing is I had a horrible, horrible, a very bad ankle sprain my first year of college. And so I'd always run and kind of, you know, never thought much about it. And so I, I rode crew my first year of college. It was like the rowing thing where you sit in the boat yep. and you do the whole thing. Um, and so I ran into practice one day at a really bad ankle sprain. So that kind of set me on this little path where, you know, it wasn't too long. Then that next year, I actually, I was working at the gym. The next year I dislocated my shoulder on the left side. And then I threw out my back. I was picking something up and just like a strain. It was a really bad strain of a back muscle. I couldn't even move for like two weeks. Um, and then it started just get these little things like plantar fasciitis, shin splint, my knees had horrible patellar tendonitis. So I was like 21, 22, 23. And my body's like falling apart. I'm like, this is way too young to be dealing with this stuff. And you know, back is always tight. Shoulder dislocated 11 times. You know, I was getting like uh, impingements in my low back that would cause the hip I lit on fire, hamstring strains, calf strains. And it was just like, something's not right here. And so trying to figure out what that looked like, it was like, okay, let me start and just figure things out. And so I realized, well, let me get back into, you know, running and try to do some of the stuff. And I was like, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to run on my forefoot. And so I kind of had this idea of like, well, I should be able to do this. And this is the biggest problem with people making a transition is because they think, oh, I, you know, it doesn't feel right. It's just something that doesn't feel right about heel striking. It's just not intuitive to the human body. And so like, well, let me go and change that. So then they, they either believe the marketing just change their shoes right away, or they just change their running form. And both of those lead you to get injured right away. So, you know, th- it was this process of like, okay, well, I jumped in, I changed my shoes and it was like, then I changed my running form. I got shin splints. It was just, it lasted for months. I had plantar fasciitis because I changed my shoes too much. My big toe wouldn't even move. And my I had turf toe on the big toe, it just, horrible. So I learned all these lessons the hard way. It was like the right intention, but the wrong process. And then let's just real, real quick. So for the people listening to kind of frame this, you through a lot of these injuries decided that, you know what, like, let me just focus on running for a little bit. 
And it was something I needed to back off and get rolled back to like, I knew how to run. And it was like, I didn't feel athletic. I kind of got a little bit fat, fatter while I was doing powerlifting. It was like, I just, yep. this isn't what I want. And yeah. I was like, that's and when as I you started running, running, as you started running again, when you, so for people that don't know, heel striking is when you go run, it's is literally exactly how it sounds. The heel hits first, then the toe kind of slaps onto the ground or yeah. rolls as you go into your next run. And traditionally, I would think most people would think, that's probably how you should run. You yeah. know, most people don't really know anything different. And then, so you were, you know, heel striking, there was some pain there. You got new shoes. You see the shoes everywhere nowadays, if it's a running shoe and it doesn't have like five to six inches of foam underneath it, it's not a good running shoe. So I'm assuming you, you know, and I'm not saying that's the truth, but like that's, as you started, I'm sure, you know, yeah. got the foamy shoes that caused more issues and then as you were continuing on from here, what happened next through that progression? Well, what it, the, the, let's say the intensity for understanding this stuff picked up. So I would go out and run, but it was like, I didn't, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, I wanted to get back into running, but I had lost like that kind of grit from just doing track and cross country all the time. So mm-hmm. I'm wearing, you know, spikes and being able to go run. So um, what I realized eventually is that that bad ankle sprain I'd had my sophomore year, my freshman year, had um, my arch had collapsed because I did physical therapy and they didn't even take my shoes off of physical therapy for an ankle sprain, which I realized is now commonplace. I thought it was crazy at the time. But and so because of that, my arch collapsed on the left side, my foot turned out, which meant my hips actually shifted. So I developed what's called a functional leg length discrepancy, meaning one of my 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 tibia and my knee was sinking lower my hip was sinking lower by about a half of an inch and that shifts my shoulder so literally every issue up chain in my body happened because of the ankle sprain and that's something that as i piece that back together it sounds crazy because most people are like that can't be a thing but if you shift part of the bottom of the foundation of the building everything up the chain is thrown off so once i realized that i'm like oh god i have to start here so I went about like these super cheap, like the thirty dollar, uh, like things like Amazon that I, I they would wear out every three months. The, the grip on the bottom would wear. I have duct tape on the bottom because I don't know, I was stupid. But um, you know, started going through this. I was like, I started rebuild from the bottom up, and I was like, you know, like all these things were going, and I had no idea what I was doing. So it's like I started doing more things in functional shoes, and then more barefoot. Started working on my running form. Started to think about moving my toes, and it's like at first you try to move your toes, it's like they just don't move, and you've lost that coordination. So, you know, it, it was this process to build back up. And then as I started to get more and more serious about it, I was like, oh, actually, I'm making big improvements. I literally fixed the leg length discrepancy through my hips and my shoulders now. Like you could look at a picture and my shoulder would have been sunk over. You know, my hips were rotated. I was kind of like sunk down on the side. And it's like now I actually stand upright and it's normal. I was like, it's blown my mind the amount of stuff I can build back up. And so that's when I look at like, it led to a deep exploration of running and shoes and feet in general. So that's the passion because... The, the big reason I care about it is because it's almost always the first thing people should do, but it's almost always the last thing they do. Meaning they always go to like, how do I strengthen the knees? How do I strengthen the back? How do I strengthen my shoulders? How do I figure like, well, if your feet are fucked up, it doesn't matter what you do. Cause it's like looking at the, I'm going to remodel the kitchen instead of fixing the foundation with mold and that's cracked and leaking. So, um, but you know, let, let's talk, we can talk a little bit about running, uh, shoes, footwear, running, how it all kind of flows together. If, uh, if that's yeah, for sure. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I think when I first started ATG, I probably started maybe like a year ago before that I knew Marcus Philly. So yeah. I, I was big in a CrossFit before I got an ATG and then Marcus Philly, I was, you know, I kind of had a similar path of you. I played soccer in college okay. and while I was playing soccer in college, I was also working at a CrossFit gym as a coach while also trying to compete as a CrossFit athlete. So yeah. I was doing a lot. 
and my knees like you at like 21 22 were absolutely killing me and yep. i just was like this this you know my knees shouldn't be hurting at fucking 22 years old and got onto one of marcus philly's first like functional bodybuilding programs that slowed things down a ton that went to like single leg single arm isometrics regressions patrick step up stuff like that so i'd seen a couple of things before ben patrick came out with his stuff and then zach woodward who you know in the atg group we were actually college roommates so as he kind of got yeah as he kind of got into some of these things we you know i moved apart he went to ucf i was still at fit but he was starting some of this stuff we talked about it we went to go see ben i trained with him once in clearwater like you're going to this weekend and once I started doing stuff, I was like, this is interesting. Like, I've never thought of these principles, athletically speaking, pretty much ever, you know, yeah. it's never been something I've thought of. The CrossFit definitely helps me much more than like the traditional college athletic program that your school gives you if you're an athlete would. Um, but this was kind of like another subset or level into it that was pretty in depth and dramatic and really started with a lot of foot stuff the step the step ups that we would do or the step downs my arch would start fucking killing me and as i started slowing these things down and doing single leg movements and doing single leg holds and doing tempo squats and like strengthening the connective tissue my knees started feeling so much better and that it finally all kind of went away and i had no issues with it anymore and as soon as I learned all of it, like, I just wanted to teach everybody that. And they were like, no, you have to do CrossFit. And I was like, I was like, oh, but like, everybody needs it. And they're like, no, no, like, this is what we do. We don't do that kind of stuff. So then I eventually kind of left the CrossFit gym. Um, but I started kind of similar to you with just knees aching like crazy early on. And it wasn't until I was able to kind of find some other programs or kind of dive into stuff that seemed never talked about. Like, nobody, and it's funny that you say people's last resort would be their feet. I would almost argue that nobody even thinks of their feet when they have a typical injury. Um, but once I got into CrossFit, that was the first time I was introduced to a flat-ish shoe when it came to lifting. Before that, I'd always worn, you know, like a Nike running shoe yeah, to work out. I thought that's, yeah, I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And then CrossFit kind of introduced me to a semi-flat shoe. And then ATG introduced me to like the fully flat shoes. And now I'm like just starting to really connect with my feet mm -hmm. and can actually move my big toe for the first time. Cause before I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, well, people, there's yeah. five, like the, the, the big toe, for example, there are five separate muscle groups for the big toe alone. There's an abductor an adductor an extensor, and then two flexors, a local and then the global one that engages the glute. Like, and that's just the big toe. There are 30, 26 uh, bones, 33 joints and hundreds of tendons, ligaments and muscles in the body. And it's unbelievable. And yet, no one does any of it. So and this is so to get to the point running. It's like, it's funny because I have this program that's kind of my, like my love child that I, it's ready to run. But, you know, the point is it's 28 days to rebuild your feet, ankles, and lower legs and, you know, for running. But it's like running literally happens almost automatically. If I take someone's shoes off and they go run, it's just like, yeah, they just do it. The question is whether or not they have the strength in their feet, ankles, lower legs to be able to support that. That's really only the only thing that matters. So, um, what you want to get is this process of, of um, understanding what happens at the feet and how to correct this stuff. So the with ATG, the process really looks like you get blood flow to the area, then you strengthen and lengthen. So it's blood flow to the area, and then you pull, pull on and work on the connective tissue under load. From that perspective, what you want to think about is the feet 
are not unlike that. They still have their blood flow. They still have their muscle development. They still have their connective tissue. They still have all that stuff. But if most people can't even move their toes and they lose the capacity to even start on that process. And so that's where there's a first step that I realize is you have to get the neuromuscular control. You have to get the actual you have to get the brain turned on. And so just like your hand, you know, you'll have a dominant hand you can write with you, you can control, you can move, you can grip. Then there's another side of that, which is you have to be able to, if you could do that on your other side, it's learning that connective tissue, learning how that body, uh, that brain, mind, mind, body connection works to be able to get um, that the, uh, the motor control, the muscles working is like, you can develop on the other side, but it's harder. So that's why when people want to move, it's like almost all the issues. So you get your, uh, the flexion in the big toe, you get the toes flex, extend, be able to abduct, move, and be able to get them to move individually. You have dozens of muscles in your feet that actually move around and control all of the stuff. Now, what you think about though, is that if you can't move those toes, if you can't move them, then you don't have even the capacity to take the load off. And that's where you get this pain and problem where instead of being able to run correctly, so you land on the outside of your foot and you rotate and pronate across, instead of being able to engage with that, then what ends up happening is you load the tendons, you load the ligaments, you load the, uh, the bones inappropriately. And that causes things like uh, turf toe, which is halicus rigidus, basically the inability to bend that big toe. You get Liz Frank fractures, which are uh, fractures in the metatarsal bone, so the bones that make the length of that foot. Basically, too much pressure there. You get um, plantar fasciitis, so that's an irritation of the plantar fascia, which is a ligament that connects the balls of your foot to your heel. Achilles tendonitis, which is a tearing and the degradation of the Achilles. Um, I could go on and on. There's all kinds of stuff. And really, it all comes from, it may be a different manifestation for you based off your specific sport, how you move and how you orient yourself. But the ultimate thing is that it really is the same problem, which is you can't move your feet. You can't get that spacing and spread. You can't get that support. You can't literally lift your feet up off the ground. And that's where you run into problems. So my biggest thing is saying, how can we get that connection back to the foot, restore movement? And so instead of having your hand grip together, like smash together, that's when you basically, you want to be able to spread that open. And when you spread that open and take the load off of that, everything else evens out. And it's a whole, it's an amazing process and it works really consistently. That makes perfect sense, dude. If anybody's listening, you don't quite understand. Try to go lift. Yeah. Try to go lift some weights. The next time you go to the gym without being able to spread your hands the entire time, try to have your fingers and your thumb tucked together. You'd have a terrible time. If you tried to grip dumbbells, if you tried to grip a pulley and your hand was completely stuck together, you'd feel like you'd have no pulling force in your muscles or pushing force. Whereas if you could actually spread the hand, grip whatever you're actually gripping, you have a lot more strength throughout because there's, a, there's almost like a squeeze factor as well than just a yeah. holding factor. Whereas when you run, if your foot would be jammed together, it's not like you can actually absorb that impact. It's almost like that impact's hitting a stiff, straight pipe almost, so to speak, which would be like your tibia and fibia. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is one that uh, the hardest part I have is that people, it's funny because this program is like 97 bucks, but people will go drop $200 on a, like one of five pairs of shoes that they'll have. And it blows my mind. I'm like, you'll spend all this money on shoes that you're not going to do anything for the feet that are in there. Mm-hmm. The marketing that's out there is that you need the right pair of shoes. And this gets on both sides of the equation. You get hokas, which are just trying to like, I cannot stand hokas. They're the worst thing ever. They're just like, Oh, let's put more padding. Let's let's arch the bottom. Let's raise the heel. They're trying to do everything for you. And then the other side, you get the Merrells or the Vibrams that are trying to like beat in the most minimal shoe. Well, I tend to think that those do are, are a much better option. Um, obviously, that's what I wear. 
the problem is that the marketing around these is get this pair of shoes, it'll fix your feet. Nothing will fix your feet except for fixing your feet. And that's the hardest part that people don't really want to think about because you do have to get in there and work on your feet. You do have to strengthen them. And it's a frustrating thing because it's like, there's no mirror muscles for your feet. I mean, people like them, I guess, but it's like, you got to think about it. It's like, it's a, it's a tedious, long process. And people would much rather believe the idea that I just need the right pair of shoes, right pair of cleats. The amount of people that have messaged me, what shoes do you recommend? What do we think of this shoe? I'm like, it's all the same shoe. Asics. Here's the thing that people don't realize from a perspective, a historical perspective, uh, ethylvinyl acetate, ethyl, ethyl vinyl acetate is like the main foam that goes under shoes. Get started. It was the first use of it was in the early 1970s. So the Nike Cortez came out in 1972. Then there's the Nike waffle, which I think uh, Bill Bowerman made a, a rubber waffle off of a waffle iron at his house and put on the bottom of the shoe to grip. That's the first time we had foam under the shoes. Before that, it was rubber or uh yeah, it was basically just rubber because vulcanization, I think at some point a few hundred years ago, they created vulcanization, which is the ability to attach leather to rubber. Um, and so then they were able to do that and you kind of put those things together. Because before 1970, you had the Converse All-Star, which had a rubber bottom sole. And obviously, you know, it was pretty simple canvas top. And it's like, that was the, actually the primary from 1917 until, or 1950s. 40s or 50s that was the number one that was the recommended army training shoe for the u.s military so um they everyone did that as a basketball shoe chuck taylor had his own brand you know that was that was the shoe right and then when the softer thing is like you realize that in the 60s bill bowerman is a he's a track coach at uh oregon i think um and so he's driving flying around you know doing different things he kind of creates these shoes with a foam sole on the bottom and then he's trying to sell them. And then he goes down to New Zealand and meets this guy named his coach Lilliard, who's a Olympic coach down in New Zealand, had created this thing called jogging, which is this intermediate form between walking and running. So you're supposed to do it on your heels. And so Bill Bowerman loves this idea, pick, picks it up, brings it back, and then popularizes it because he's hoping to get a bunch more people involved in racing. So at that point, you know, you look at historically speaking, we think of gyms and training as being ubiquitous. It's like, oh, everybody works out. What gym do you go to? It's like you have a church membership, your gym membership. Like that's kind of what we just think, at least in the Southern, it's like that's what you're supposed to do, right? But the thing is, at the point in the 50s and 40s, well, really, this whole exercising wasn't a thing. You know, people, the, the activities of daily life weren't hard enough for people to think, oh, what do I need to do to go be in physical shape? It was like, sorry, the activities of daily life are hard enough that they kept their body in shape. Yeah. And so then you get to the world wars, which is interesting because now you need millions of young men at the time, like to go and do stuff. And you realize you're all out of shape. You can't even run and do this. So they actually, that's when they start world war one, world war two, they start to create standardized training programs for the military because they need to have a ready and standing army to be able to get up and do stuff. So that's when they started getting more in fitness. And so just like a lot of things that come, you know, they go from like the government end up going down to regular, uh, like, citizen work like you know space technology and race car technology stuff like that funnels its way down you know you get this this emphasis in the uh late 40s 50s 60s where we have the agricultural uh, so the industrial revolution where we can now uh, like take things like uh crisco and you know take fake food that bleach that which is vegetable shortening and then make that edible and then we say oh no saturated fats are bad so then people are eating shitty food their bodies start to fall apart the joints start to hurt they get obese the, the first heart attacks really start to surface in the 50s um I'm like well we need to fix this so the 60s come by and you know start to get more and more people people are out of shape they're fat the baby boomers have been back for from the war you know having kids it's like people sitting around and so there's well 
And then all of a sudden, in the 70s, you see this massive boom and takeoff of jogging. It was the thing. Bill Bowman comes back and popularizes it. And then guess what? People start running because they're out of shape and they're not in, they're not able to do anything. So they, instead of going for walks, they start jogging and then they get hurt because they're running on their heels, which is really painful if you've ever done it without shoes. But guess who's there to sell them thick heeled shoes? Nike. And so you get this, you look at from 1970s, uh, Brooks starts in the 1970s. Asics was created in 1949, but they started selling shoes in the 1970s. They're running shoes. They're always the big technology stuff. If you want to look at something interesting, go look at the history of Asics shoes. They got all kinds of like wind funnels and stuff like that. In New Balance is, I think, 1890, 18, uh, it's been around for 120-something years. Um, you get the New Balance, or sorry, Adidas and Puma, both created in the 1920s, 1917, somewhere in there. Um, you get Converse, which was eventually bought by Nike. Uh, so you look at all these shoes that come in, and then you get basically what is now the last 50 years in a, a battle back and forth between who can create the new shoe. It's all but Asics does gel. Um, Nike does their boost technology. No, Adidas does their boost technology. Nike does yeah. their zoom technology. Uh, most of them, if they don't have boost or zoom, it's EVA, mm -hmm. ethylene vinyl acetate. Um, Asics puts a gel pad in there. Saucony has their wave, their little like plastic piece. Mm -hmm. They'll have carbon fiber, but it's not solving the fundamental problem that our bodies are not meant to heel strike when we run. And that is as simple as going outside and walking without shoes and saying, hmm, this doesn't feel good. How, like, and here's the thing is you look at people, how you only have to take 10 steps to go jog without your shoes on and say, this doesn't feel good. So if you look and say one other example of, you know, it's like, oh, my body's not meant to me, you know, like, I don't know. Let's just say my body is meant to put food in my mouth and chew it and get the nutrition there. Hmm. What technology could I do to shove this through my nose and get the same thing to happen? It's like, well, maybe you could do that if you do like a, you know, or put something in your throat and do that. Maybe you could do it in extreme cases, but it's like, that's not how the body's meant to do it. The body's meant to eat food through the mouth. So let's actually do that instead of just saying like, well, we can actually shove this into your throat or push it up your nose. Or it's like, like that, that's, that's basically what we've done with the running and the commercialization of running has done so much harm for the sport, by the way, or the movement really that it's a hard thing to get people to undo that, but they just don't see the perspective. Like 50 years ago, everybody knew that running was done on their front of your foot. Then we changed and we lost that. Now all of a sudden we like don't know things we always knew. And it's an interesting perspective, but people don't think about it from that perspective. Right. Yeah. Dave, that's very, that was a sick history lesson, by the way. I just learned <laughs> a lot about it. some major sports industry companies that I've known my entire life, but didn't really know a whole lot about them. Oh, God, I could go forever on that. That was a big, a big, so part of the ready to run is like a 36, 37,000. Well, the, just the education part is there's like 37,000 word ebook that goes through. Because in, in order to understand why the running shoe looks the way it does now, you have to understand where it came from. You have to understand the influences behind it. And so the history running didn't become a sport until 1896 when the first Olympics, the modern Olympics was created. So it, running has been around forever as a natural human movement, but it was never something that people would have done just for fun. The oldest yeah. competition, so Heb said, which is like 3,000 years BC, that's the uh, Egyptian emperor had a, um, or the Egyptian pharaoh, I should say, wrong dynasties. Um, he had to go and prove every three years, after 30 years of reign, he had to prove that he was still physically fit in order to be able to rule. So every three years, he'd have to go run a course. And then every three years after that, he'd have to beat his time, which is, I think, a great standard. But then you see um, ancient Irish festivals at the worshiping the death of the queen, and they, they held it was a... Um, a goddess at the time, um, you know, they would have competitions. And most of that was like throwing things and foot races. So you start to see this, like 
then you get the obviously Olympics where um, you get this the original marathon, so to speak, was done. Uh, basically, the messenger came and told the the defeat of the Spartans, um, or the defeat of I think of the Athenians. I forget exactly what it was, but at some point, um, the, the guy had to run 26 miles from Marathon to Athens to warn of their impending victory. And so that's this historical thing. But, you know, it wasn't too long where the uh, the first event, actually, for the first 50 years of the Olympics, the only event was a race, a foot race. And that was called a stadium, which is about 160 to 200 meters, uh, which is the length of a stadium. So th- that was the first, that's the only thing they did for, and they had it, they would travel around, do the Olympics at different places. Then they had the diathlon, um, you know, it was a diet, diet stadium. I forget the names of it, but now uh, there was like two laps. So you get pretty interesting. You, the first events are the 100 to 200 meter sprint. Then you get the 400 meter sprint. Then you get the mile. Then you get the 5k. Then you get the loaded carriage, like a ruck. And then in 1896, when they reinstitute the, the Olympics, you get the marathon. And that was the first time it got brought in. I think it was in France, the first one. Maybe it was in Greece. But 1897, you get the Boston Marathon. So the first marathon held in the United States. Then it kind of it picks up, and there's five the next year, and it starts to pick up more. And then, you know, in the early 1910s, you get the first American winter. Actually, the first 1960s, you get the first American winner of the Olympics, uh, of a marathon in the Olympics. Um, and that's when it takes off, and the U.S. people start getting carried crazy about it. But you know, it's interesting because there's such a culture around endurance running and marathons and Ironmans and stuff now and ultras. It's like, you think it's been around for a while. This is a very, very modern obsession. And the question of like, yes, people have been able to run and walk for hundreds of miles, but like no one would have just gone and run for 80 miles just to just go run. Like that's, you got to realize that like ultra running, which has kind of taken over the, the conversation about running like this Ironman thing, those are extreme sports. But you don't let people that bungee jump tell you how to operate and be healthy. It's like, okay, that's an extreme sport and that's totally yeah. fine. But just because you need to heel straight or you need to wear really thick shoes and braces and all the stuff to get away with potentially doing that for an ultra marathon should not change the actual normal conversation we need to have about running and movement for athletes, for regular people, for people who just want to go and do like, you know, let's say marathons and less running, which I like call normal running, so to speak. Does that all make sense? Yeah, dude, that makes perfect sense. I think... I think so many, I don't really know. I don't, dude, I don't get the obsession to be honest with you. I'm not a runner. Like if I, I went to one cross country practice when I was in high school. And as soon as I got done with that, I was like, never again. If I don't have an object that is in front of me that I'm chasing, there's no way you want me to just mindlessly run for a clock. Like I get, once I got started doing CrossFit, I enjoyed the the clock kind of being the thing that you chase because I kind of understood it. But when I was younger, it made no sense to me. You put a soccer ball, a basketball, a tennis ball, whatever it might be in front of me and something to chase it, I'll run all day long. But I have yeah. to have that thing right in front of me to give me feedback. I can't just do like the long, tedious, straight run. Oh, yeah. Well, there's there's two parts of that. One of which is that's a very historically uh, coherent view of running. Like people would have run to get away from shit or to chase shit. That's it. And they, like, outside of that, they're not going to go for a run today. Oh, wait, what? Like. Did you not do all the chores we have to do and feed and good this stuff? So the human capacity to move is like, that's ubiquitous. We have to be able to run. We have to be able to move. Like, that's just how it is. But in terms of the game and the fun aspect, like that's one of the biggest things is two parts of this. One of which is much of the conversation about, oh, running is so good is done by people. And I, 
like I, there are people that love it. I think a lot of people that do love it are more introverts, love to be alone with their thoughts. It's good. And it's also a very easy access thing. You don't have to have friends. You don't have to have a ball. You don't have to have space. You sure. can just go run. So there's, there's some freedom and there's the endorphins and there's a sweat, which is a, a way of the body getting rid of toxins. That, that's very helpful. But there's a lot of people that just do it because it's like, it gets, it's an escape thing. So people that go mm-hmm. hike the Appalachian trail, they want to get away. It's like, and that's where if they want, that's fine. But I still struggle when I see someone that's like, you know, got a family and kids and, you know, a job. And they're like, oh, yeah, but I'm also going to go train three hours a day by myself. I'm like, that's a little bit of an escapism thing. Yeah. And so I think that's it's that part of it. So I think a lot of people that go and do that stuff are really just like there are some inner demons they're running away from. But the other side of that is that most people never really learned how to run. And so it's either painful or it's uncomfortable. And there is something that I don't do a lot of. I do a lot. I love like. Uh, you know, shorter uh, interval workouts. I love like more intense works and I, I enjoy being able to go run. Um, but the problem with running, the, if you say running, it's been co-opted by people who think, oh, it's a 5K or a marathon or an ultra. Running is literally what you do when you're moving forward. And that mm-hmm. is every sport, whether it's tennis, volleyball, basketball, soccer, that is every, you know, if you're doing a competition, that's your ability. Like if I have to go, you know, is that there was, I had to go, there's this like, target and their lows are right beside one another. And it was like 200 yards away. And I think most people would have gotten in the car and driven. I'm like, fuck that. I want to run. And it's like being able to like run and go for places and cover ground and have autonomy over your body and feet. And whether it's hiking, whether it's walking, whether like, that's what I mean when I say running. And that's what I want people to get back to, which is like, this is your freedom. Your freedom happens with your feet. You give up your feet, give up your freedom. Yeah. So like the running part, and this is one that, you know, I'll get people that want to do marathons and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but like, there are so many people that I really want to give this message to of like, running is your, like, is everything. And so that's what the better you can get at running, the better you're going to be at soccer, the better, because most movement with soccer happens off the ball, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like 90 people, the best players may get less than a minute on the ball. It's like, most of your time you're chasing and running and trying to cover and defend. It's like, yeah, that's a different experience, but it all starts with healthy feet. Yeah. Why do you think people's feet right now are so messed up? Is it because of the, is it because of the shoes primarily? Well, I think there's probably a couple of different things. Let me see if I got, a, I got a couple ideas and then you tell me what Weird. your thoughts are. Uh, first would definitely be the shoes people are wearing. The majority of people's shoes are super narrow, in my opinion. Once I wore like Vivos versus now, it's honestly the worst thing ever because I wore Vans my entire life yeah. growing up and now I've worn Vivos. And when I put my foot back into a Vans shoe, I'm like, dude, this is uncomfortable. And I didn't even yeah. recognize that before. Um, so definitely narrow shoes. I think the other one would be like you talked about, like the cushion. So they definitely don't have a lot of strength within their feet. But I also just think a lot of people, the good example you just gave right there was like if they were at a store that was 200 feet away, instead of them walking, they just get in their car. So they just go from a sitting position to a sitting position to a sitting position, and they're never actually on their feet until the one situation arises where they have to be on their feet. And that's when like, oh, my feet hurt. Yeah. So those are some of the big ones I see. you're, You're spot on with all of those. One thing that I think is valuable. So you asked me the question in the beginning, like what, what, what kind of, I don't know, makes me different or the, in a sense where most people just kind of like write off the story and then leave it there. You got to look at, at least in this country, and I think it's more true in most developed um, countries is you can't look at the average, like the average person is in America is in debt, is out of shape and is overweight. Like 73 or 76% of people are overweight and 43.6% are more obese. 
The average person is obese. The average person is in significant debt. The average person hates their job. And the average person gets like, hates their relationship. And it's like, so first off, if you want to think about what you're capable of, you got to stop looking at the averages around you. And the average person in America spends more time on their butt than they do on anything else. And so mm. that's a big part of it, which is saying you need to load the feet. That being said, if you get people to take their shoes off, it, I, it's amazing how people take their shoes off and they still walk like they're wearing shoes. And it's like their, their feet turn into flippers and it's just kind of very stiff. And there is, and it's not unlike the athleticism of being able to orient yourself. So think about it. There are 33 bones in the foot or 26 bones in the foot, 33 joints, and then all the muscles. If the feet were meant to just be flippers, there would be one bone. But there is so much capacity for those feet to adjust, to be flexible, to rotate. Like that all happens when you actually basically, when you restore the movement to the feet, you have to get those toes to spread open. And the other thing is there's thousands of nerve endings in the bottom of the foot to sense things like proprioception, where you are in space, the firmness of the ground, the temperature of the ground, how soft it is, like let's say the texture, being able to feel that stuff. There is so much that's part of it. And think about it. Like if you, um, if you wanted to see how something tastes, you put it in your mouth before you really swallow it, right? So if, if we didn't have to be discerning about what we ate, we wouldn't need our mouth to be able to, like, swallowing would just be like, you know, it just would be like a snake, right? You put something in your face and it goes down your throat. But it's mm -hmm. like, because we need to, we have our mouth to be able to sense. And if you look at the homunculus, which is the wiring of the cortical mapping of the sensory part of the body, you have this idea that it's like, you're this, this, if you look and say that we're actually sensing through things. So we use our hands and our fingers to touch and say, Hmm, is this first? Oh, I want to eat this. It's like, wow, is this, is this, is this firm? Could I, could I bite this? Could I eat this? And it's like, then I put it in my mouth and a little, little nibble. And it's like, we have all these senses to do that. Our feet have a huge portion of that yet. It's almost always stuck in socks and we're stuck in like padded comfort shoes and we shut that down. And then we never lose or forget how to orient ourselves off that. So the hard part is that it's much easier to just wear shoes, wear socks and choose comfort. But, you know, you do have to like, I'll go out every morning and I'll walk around in my front yard barefoot to ground and kind of offload the electricity negative. I don't know the sound with the sound, but if you look it up, it's a thing. Yeah, your body stores a current. And basically when you step in there and you ground, you offload the unused electrons um, or something along those lines. But it's a thing. Um, and yeah. then I go walk. I've got these rocks, like a bed of rocks that I love rocks. Um, but they're like these river rocks. And I get this whole like plant bed thing. And so I just walk around on that barefoot. And it's not comfortable, but it just, the more you learn to relax and let go of that tension, every part of your body relaxes and softens to that. But, you know, the feet are just one thing where people just don't want to, we've alienated and divorced ourselves from the world around us. And it's unfortunate because we end up losing that connection with that mother earth so to speak and that mm -hmm. oriented it, there's there's so much to it but i think you know you can't look at the feet as just this like performative thing of like i just need my feet to be able to spread it's like no no you need your feet to be able to like like it, your feet on the ground it's like your feet are kissing the ground like it's it's like when you you see you know, a lover or a friend and you go give them a hug and you kind of like your two souls melt in together with one another you like just you know, there's a reconnection. That's what it's like when your feet you touch the ground. They can kind of sink in. They feel the ground. They form to the space. Like it's a very, you know, deep relationship we have with the earth. And if we don't understand that that comes in part from functional feet, we lose that. And that's a really sad thing. But yeah. there's a lot of nuance. But you hit the big ones, which are shoes that suffocate your feet, basically. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. And I mean, as we kind of 
you know, near towards the end of this, I wanted to make sure we had some ideas or concepts that people could potentially use themselves after listening to this. I'm like, okay, Graham's making a shit ton of sense here. He's kind of blowing my mind with a lot of history that I would have never known with, which was the rise of shoes in our life. Um, and I kind of want to work on my feet. Obviously, first thing I could do is definitely sign up for Graham's ready to run program because it's only 97 bucks. And that's going to save you a shit ton more money than those Hoka's like oh, $300. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, what would be like a couple of different things that people could do maybe at home? One you just gave, you know, going outside, grounding your feet in the morning. Um, any other tips that you can kind of give to people if they've heard this podcast and started to realize maybe they should start working on their feet that they could do at home? Absolutely. So the three things I always would, would encourage you to start with are one, it's called the hand foot glove. So wherever you're sitting, if you were not, you can do it if you're driving, if you're skilled, but probably not. Um, you basically take your fingers and you interlace them between your toes. And so you grab your foot with your hand and that's going to feel uncomfortable at first and it'll get better. But basically you're this, you know, people talk about toe spacers a lot. They want to put the, you know, their, your, those weird things you do. I actually never use them and I don't really love them. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they're not unlike orthotics in the sense that they kind of put your foot into a passive position. Um, they can be helpful, I guess, but I don't know. I don't love them, but um, I haven't tried them. I should try them, but it's just like, I, I just, I'm a little nervous about, they're not nervous. It's just one of those things that like everything I've done, I'm like, you can wear them. They can be helpful, but it's like, they're not going to do the thing for you. Uh, but yeah. certainly this hand foot gloves, so you grab your foot with your hand and you just feel those fingers work in between those toes and then just play like move left and right and just start to restore that. So that's the first thing. And then while you're there, just like press into your feet and just start to explore and look at your feet. Are they pliable? Can they move? Can you get them to engage? That's another one. The other one I've been thinking about that I think is really valuable is if you take two hands. So you take, let's say you got your left foot, you take your right hand and you fold and flex the little toes down. So you basically hold those down. You take your left hand and you pull that big toe forward. So you pull the big toe towards you and out to the side a little bit. So you're basically pulling the big toe away from the little toes. Now, then you can let go of that right hand and let those little toes stay flexed and then let go of the left hand and try and create this situation where the big toe is up and the little toes are flexed. It's like the thumbs up for your foot, basically. So you're basically doing a thumbs up with your uh, big toe up. And you start to feel this pulling away. You might feel some cramping as you engage this position, but that's going to start to differentiate this big toe from the other one. So getting that big toe straightened, get those little toes flexed. So, the, you know, your foot hand glove and then the thumbs up with the foot. I just came up with that name. I like that a lot, actually. That's good. And then the third is just a very simple, like, well, I would like to say an arch builder, which is where you grab the stand, grab the ground with your feet and you lift the inside of your foot up. But that's actually a nuanced thing that has been a harder, it's, it's hard to describe auditorily. But I'll say the other thing that really, really uh, will help you is, is tip raises on the wall, but not how you're thinking about them. Most people get on the wall, they put their hips on the wall, their legs are straight, they lift their toes up. And the thing is that you've got your extensor digitorum longus, your extensor uh, flexor, your extensor digitorum longus for the little toes, your extensor halicus longus for the big toe that extend, they lift the toes up, as well as you have your, uh, your anterior tibialis. Um, and then you got your extensor digitorum and extensor halicus brevis, so they're short muscles. All those work. And if you're not discerning, you can actually get to a point where you're pulling up those toes with all those muscles and you're not actually hitting, you're, you're, uh, you're doing everything at once instead of when you're trying to hit one. So it's like, I'm trying to hit one key on the piano, but I'm hitting all five because I'm smashing it out. 
Now, the other part is that we don't ever really get the tib posterior to be honest there. So when your hips are on the wall, if you lift up the bottom of your foot, but you think about keeping those toes relaxed and then pull from the bottom of your foot. So you lift up your foot, but you pull from the bottom and you can do this from a sitting position and you'll feel the inside of those foot curl and it's going to invert a little bit. So the bottom of the foot will turn in. That's hitting that, that posterior tibialis. So the posterior tibialis is the, the biggest single hidden problem child for most people when it comes to um, shin splints and irritation at the inside of that ankle. So if I pull up on the bottom of that foot and I lift up there, that creates a stray, a, a working motion for that posterior tibialis. And that starts to reform that arch. So those three, differentiating the big toe with the thumbs up, working on the hand foot glove and that posterior tibialis raise. So it's tib raises on the wall, but relaxing the toes and pulling up from the very bottom of the foot. Those three will do some wonders for you. And then, of course, Fantastic. you know, that's where the rest of the Ready to Run program is a, a uh, programmed 28-day process to start with coordination, then to go with the foot strength, the ankle range of motion, lower leg strength, and then work on running drills. It's along with it's, it's there. But, you know, you do that once, it sets you off for the point where you don't have to spend money on the orthotics and all the shin, you know, the shin uh, compression wraps, and new socks and new shoes every three months. So, yeah, I mean, that could potentially save you fucking thousands. Oh my God. Yeah. Run. You think about how much, and this is what people don't think about it. Like, oh, I'll just go to physical therapy. Do you really want to spend 20 minutes driving the physical therapist, 20 minutes back, sit there and get tossed around with some stupid exercises. Then you have to go, you can't do what you love. And it's like, even if it's a little bit of pain, you're going to be slower on your sport. You may have to miss time. You have to buy fancy socks. You have to buy an insole. You have to buy compression sleeves. You have to buy new shoes. And it's like, then it becomes painful to walk around barefoot. So then you have to have shoes for inside. I mean, it's like, like the amount of shit that goes on and this is not not even to mention this is a one-way street to shin splints to calf tightness to knee pain to hip asymmetry i mean it's like it's just spend some time to fix your feet and the rest of your body will get so much better and it is that is what i've seen and it's worked over 230 people have signed up for the first three classes total um and i get dozens of success stories like it's it's working it's just a matter of making it commonplace that people like move their toes again so Bring back, uh, let's make uh, make feet cool again yeah dude let's make feet cool again let's reconnect to mother earth so fantastic graham thanks for uh for kind of sharing all this information and knowledge with all my listeners and whatnot and kind of sharing what you've been doing it's a really cool niche and like subsection of fitness that you know like nobody fucking thinks about so thanks for kind of pioneering a lot of some of this stuff and putting it into like a well-versed program that's very easy for people to follow um where can people find you more listen from you learn from you all those types of things uh my, all the usual stuff so i i spend a lot like way too much time every day putting out content on uh, instagram and it's still, i get like free workouts every day on instagram um but tiktok instagram uh, i got a youtube channel i got a podcast got a uh um a newsletter i've got article like literally everything you think about so either my it's all my name so graham tuttle g-r-a-h-a-m-t-u-t-t-l-e um if you type that in it'll be the first option on tiktok and instagram and the website and all that stuff as well youtube you know i'd love to get to know you better so fantastic um, dude yeah we'll definitely put all those in the show notes so people can get access to that and see that um but i guess maybe last couple of questions i have for you what's uh what are you working towards this year besides the ready to run program or is that kind of like the main baby for this year? Uh, you mean from like a personal perspective, from a business yeah. perspective? Personal, um, kind of like athletic perspective. Uh, my, so I'm, what I'm doing from a personal athletic perspective is like really 
being the proof of the pudding. So um, I have, I think in order to really make this a proof, I need to go into a marathon at some point. Like I've done, I, like I hiked a marathon last year in the Grand Canyon in Merrill. So like the little barefoot Merrill yeah. shoes. Um, I've run, you know, I, I've run the 15, 16 mile, like for cross country practices. So like I've done, the thing is I've done all the long distance running. I just don't love it. If I'm like, Ugh. but at some point I'm like, I think I need to do like a trail half marathon and minimalist shoes. I need to go do a full marathon in minimalist shoes. And, but the really thing I really care about is I want to get a 400 meter time. I want to, I, I ran just kind of like at the end of a workout, did a barefoot. I did 50, like right at 57, 58 seconds. Um, but I want to be able to get that in a 55. So that's what I'm working on personally. Then I also learn how to jump a little bit better because volleyball, you need to jump. So uh, yeah. that's the next skill is learning how to like, not just the, you know, like learning the technique and pulling these pieces together. Cause it's not a, it's not very gracious. It's not, you know, what's the, the funny thing is, it's, it's hard for me to jump because I was always afraid of heights. <laughs> <laughs> I would jump up. If you watch my jumping form, I jump up, but I look down. So instead of yeah. jumping up and being up in the sky, I look down the ground because I'm like, I don't want to be too high up in the sky. And, but as my vision's gotten better, as my body's like, I, I'm obviously gotten past that a little bit, but the old habits are still there. So like, it, like jumping over hurdles and stuff, like I'm afraid it, it sounds stupid, but it's like, it's uncomfortable to jump high, <laughs> but that's so funny. Uh, I will say like, I'm getting, as I get better and get more explosive, the whole point of all the running thing is like, I want to be able to prove like, you don't need to go and do a lot of running to be a good runner. You just need to have strong body and you're capable. Like that's, that's what you need to do. And so if I can go and do those with minimal running, I wanted to open up for people like, Hey, this is the thing you got to do. And it's like, that's where I would look at. So, but you know, I need to do that at some point. So it's just a matter of bracing the suck and doing it. <laughs> yeah. Figure that out. Well, you got a marathon coming on the way then. Fantastic, Graham. Thanks again so much for kind of hopping on the show, man, sharing all this information. And until next time, guys, we will see you in the next podcast. Peace.